Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Thursday show. I'm Tracy Johnson, your host in for Jeff Wagner this week. Uh, the text line is already lighting up um, on a lot of things that were talked about during Steve's show, uh, but also potentially breaking news will keep you all alert as we have it. Um, of course, this is live radio. We are uh, working to do the best we can on all stories. So I just bring that to you because, again, we're getting a lot of texts on some things happening right now. But we're going to go on with the show uh, as planned. Uh, we have a jam-packed show and a number of guests. So when we put together a show like this, and uh, I'm filling in for the week, we line up uh, a number of guests and pick topics, and sometimes they all happen to fall on the same day. So we are going to have a jam-packed show. Omar Sheikh is in with us. We're going to have uh, one of the leaders of the new mental health bills going through the assembly at the state of Wisconsin. And then we have a really special guest. She is a VA nurse who traveled to Israel uh, after the events of October 7th uh, over in Israel. So we'll get her take on what happened there. Uh, the show is always better when you're a part of it. So please weigh in on 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So I want to start today's show on a little bit lighter note and give a big congratulations to a friend of the station and a friend of broadcasting and someone that I have looked up to uh, throughout my career and throughout my time here in Milwaukee. The retirement of Carol Meekins was announced yesterday. She was with WTMJ4 for 32 years and 40 years in television. She will be hanging up the microphone uh, November 30th. She is the most veteran anchor here in the Milwaukee market. And I would argue she is one of the best. We have one of the best in the market here through November 30th. And I know she she lives in the area. Wonderful lady. I worked as a volunteer contributor on a segment over at WTMJ4 called What's Hot? And this is when the TV and radio stations were in the same building and they were launching the three o'clock news, which she would anchor. And so I would appear on the show along with Jeff Wagner and then the anchors and we would talk about hot topics of the day and the radio and the TV station would kind of share information and cross kind of cross pollinate and cross feed uh, the different uh, the, the stations. And so I would often see her before the show in kind of this little light room where you'd you know fix your hair and just make sure everything was okay and i had a chance to talk to her and she is just the most genuine sincere trustworthy person that uh, i have ever met and always a smile on her face and uh, if you recall many of you who watched wtmj4 she launched the positively milwaukee segment and i also had the opportunity to talk with her about uh, my journey in Milwaukee with my son who was undergoing uh, cancer treatment at the time and so she covered kind of our family and my story and she just always asked the right questions she always asked the night the next question and really got to the heart of the issue and she will have such a, an influence on this market and on all the other journalists who come after her so congratulations to Carol Meekins on her retirement from WTMJ4 News so I am not 
I am not a political pundit, but I, I did want to address the big news of the day, which is the debate that happened last night. And I had a few observations, and these are observations of a suburban white woman. We are that kind of that voting block that everyone is kind of questioning where do we come from what do we do how do we vote what drives our decisions and you know just from my perspective a few takeaways and i just share them with you if you want to share a text feel free on the eight on the old national bank talk and text line but we're only going to talk about it for this segment a few things i like when the candidates support each other and i mentioned this to steve in the crosstalk i thought that when chris christie and nikki haley were agreeing at times that was a good thing they are fierce opponents but they can agree to agree at times and agree that not everything about the other person is is bad or is wrong and i I appreciated that i appreciated that forum to be able to see people acknowledge uh what's good about their opponents uh i noticed that vivek spoke the truth uh, but he becomes more and more unbearable, unbearable every time that I watch him. He definitely appeals to a segment, but and, and I think he has a purpose on that stage. But I think his time is coming to an end and his purpose might be running its course. I think he ruffled a lot of feathers, especially with the RNC. Uh, I thought he was rude, frankly. And that's one of the things that's off-putting for, for me. I think Tim Scott is a nice guy. And I love how he loves his mom. He is such a a good spirit on that stage. But I think he needs to go. Chris Christie, I think he's better when he's not snarky or when he's ripping on Donald Trump. He is a smart guy and an accomplished governor. And I think when we hear from people in this audience, they really appreciate his historical perspective. I think they do like his fire and his grit. And you know, I, I think he will have a place uh, moving forward, I'm not sure he'll make the next debate. I think he made it by the by the by the hair on his head this last time, but we shall see. And then, as I mentioned to Steve, you know the fact that Trump wasn't there, Donald Trump wasn't there, and he really wasn't mentioned a whole lot. I thought that was a good uh, good showing by the by the politicians on the stage. I think it was it showed good uh, restraint to not go after Donald Trump. And I think they did a very fair job that allowed us to hear from them and hear what their perspectives were and hear what their plans were. I think DeSantis is accomplished. He demonstrated that. But I think he was a little safe and he continues to be safe. And, you know, thank goodness the election isn't today or tomorrow, because that might be something that really stands out as we start to winnow the field uh, once again. And then as we talked about with Steve, I know this audience is very favorable towards Nikki Haley. You know, she's a very, very conservative, hawkish, a globalist and very conservative. But the way that she says things and her moderate and measured approach to things, I think, is very appealing to voters. We've seen uh, on the Supreme Court, as an example, that women are really very electable, very attractive to the electorate. Uh, because of sometimes their style. Other times, their style is just abrasive to the voters and just untenable. But Nikki Haley seems to have struck a balance. And one of the things we saw 
in the Marquette poll is that her appeal of of young people is very, very strong. So the voters, uh, I think it was 24 to 20 or 39. It was very strong for Nikki Haley, which is usually a more Democrat leaning uh, voter block. So I think this was an important and interesting exercise. Once again, uh, maybe it was for not. Maybe we will see some momentum. Iowa is the big, uh, the big uh, election. The caucus coming up in the middle of January, and then we'll have Super Tuesday in March. And this field is going to get real small, real fast. But I am paying attention to the momentum because just like a football game or. Any other situation where you have all these people going towards the same prize, it's about the momentum. And we are a year out at this time. We are a year out from the presidential election, and we have so much runway to go. We have so much more to learn about these candidates on both the Republican side and the Democrat side. So I think this is a good thing, and I I look forward to the next debate. I, I enjoy these types of opportunities especially when we can hear directly from the candidates. So we are going to shift away from politics for the rest of the show and have a lot to get to, including the latest deal that has been struck with the Actors Union. This has been a six-month ordeal, and it looks like we have an agreement. I want to discuss it uh, and really try to try to get to the, the, the issue at hand. Is this significant And does this really matter when we come back on WTMJ? One of the big headlines today is that the Actors Union has negotiated a tentative agreement with the Hollywood and TV studios. If you're a listener of the show, I think my show and when Jeff is on, we talk a lot about what's happening in the world of some of these strikes and in unions and all of that. Uh, I've mentioned before, I've worked with a number of unions throughout my career and find it fascinating, this whole process of, of labor negotiations and, and all of that. So my question, though, in looking at this specific deal is, is how significant is this and, and does it really matter? And I suppose the answer to that question is it, it depends on who you are. So a couple of, of quick details on this Hollywood actors uh, agreement and the strike. This strike has been going on for six months. And I know when I read that number, I thought, oh, wow, I guess I, I guess I didn't realize that because I don't really pay attention to, you know, movies like some people do and some of the TV shows. And, you know, I have the online streaming services so I can pretty much access whatever I want and I watch a lot on YouTube, like my kids do, and on social media. So this was a strike that lasted for six months. It involved 160,000 actors that were on strike asking for higher wages, better working conditions, and then job security and security measures around AI. Interesting point about this strike is the huge economic cost that this had on Southern California, $6.5 billion in economic impact. This is lost income tax revenue. This is lost tourism. This is lost revenue to the area. In addition, 45,000 jobs were lost. Many people 
lost their jobs or left their jobs because they didn't see an end in sight. You know, there were a lot of people who were really collateral damage in this strike who weren't actors asking for more money. They were stagehands. They were production staff. They were the makeup people. And they were all out of work because there were no movies being made. There were no TV shows being taped. And so what are they supposed to do? Many of them hung it up. Many of them left the area. And so there's a lot of collateral damage in all of this. My question really is about this deal and how quickly you can put this in place. When you stop an entire industry for six months and then start it up again, you need to be really realistic about your expectations. You've got to get all those people back to Hollywood and California. Well, first of all, you need to ratify the contract, which we're hearing, according to Fran Drescher, who is the president of the Actors Union, she's very excited because this is a great deal, one of the best deals that has ever been struck. The value is something like $1 billion. But you have a deal now. Are you going to be able to put this in action? Have too many people already left the industry? Has the collateral damage taken hold, and will it take down this entire industry? You think about it from a healthcare perspective. When you have a surgeon at a hospital, he can't perform the surgery unless he has a nurse or he has the scalpel. And if the person who's supposed to sanitize the scalpel isn't in or is on strike or is sick or has COVID or doesn't want to come to work, you can't perform that surgery. And so there's this ripple effect. And I think they're, they're going to have a lot of ground to cover. They're expecting that... By January, maybe they'll be able to kind of get things moving along here. Uh, but but we shall see. I, I have high doubts. I think the contract will be ratified. It sounds like it's a good deal. I think many of these people are ready to get back to work. But what they're not considering is how difficult it will be to start back up again. You can't just go to bed for six months and wake up. And expect everything to be the same. When we come back, one song, 35 years, and a huge headline we'll discuss when we come back. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together That's we can Tracy If you are my age, a Gen Xer, you probably remember that song from 1988. I know in talking to uh, Aaron behind the booth, he worked for a country station and played this song as well as the Luke Combs version. This is this is such a cool story and that's why I and I have the opportunity to bring it to you. So I'm not supposing that anyone was necessarily watching the CMA Awards with bated breath, but I did find this story interesting. Uh, last night, the 57th annual CMA Country Music Awards ceremony kicked off in the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee, and some of the biggest names in country were in attendance to celebrate the best of the genre. Some of the winners last night included, included Chris Stapleton, Old Dominion, and Tracy Chapman, as well as Luke Combs. And 
for those of you who follow country music or just music in general, like me, you'll recognize this song, Fast Car, which was first produced and performed by Tracy Chapman in 1988. And then again, 35 years later by Luke Combs and Luke Combs uh, took this to the top of the country charts. Tracy Chapman took it to the top of the pop charts. This is such a great song and such a great story because last night, Tracy Chapman received recognition and the honor of song of the year for fast car. And Luke Combs received the award for single of the year. And it was really cool to see how they just acknowledged one another, thanked one another, and were so appreciative of one another for bringing this song forward. And Luke Combs in his remarks just has said he loved this song from the time that he started to perform and to be able to uh, cover the song, to remake the song and see it have such success was just so inspiring for him. And I know there was a a lot of debate and some controversy. Everybody wants to make controversy over this stuff that uh, Tracy Chapman didn't receive the the recognition and she wasn't going to be, you know, recognized and all of that. When it was funny because she actually spoke out and said, Hey, I'm making money here. I'm being recognized. This is just fine. This is great. And I'm so honored that this song continues to live on. So if you didn't catch that last night because you were busy watching the debates, I think this is a, a great story, a great feel good uh, to start off our show on this Thursday. But I have to ask, Aaron, as someone who worked with both versions, what which was your preference? For me, absolutely the original. I yeah. I always tend to side with the originals over the covers. That's just kind of like the old school, old heart that I have. I grew up on all the classic yeah. stuff. So that's, yeah, I'm always going to side with the original. And the original is just a great, amazing classic song. So it is. that's where I'm leaning there. Well, and I love that when I was, this was 35 years ago, I was in fifth grade. I remember going to that concert. So one thing that stood out is, it, it, first of all, it made me feel old. Like from a, from a generational standpoint, there are so many people who love that Luke Combs song who never even heard of Tracy Chapman. And so now to kind of bring that back and then pull it forward, I think it's, it's really cool. And to watch it kind of straddle all these different genres, it's it's a really cool thing. I love music. And so I always do these little drops with music. All right. I'm when, there with you, Tracy. <laughs> I love it. That's why we're a good team. When we come back, one of the most complicated and rising issues in our world is mental health. The solutions aren't always clear or universally agreed upon. And right now, fortunately, there are a number of bills on the floor in the Wisconsin uh, Assembly and Senate right now that may give those struggling with service of mental health. We'll be joined by one of the lead advocates on that bill when we return. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, right here on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ 1235. Great to be with you on this Thursday afternoon. I'm in for Jeff Wagner this afternoon till 3 o'clock. Right now, we are joined in studio by a one of the lead advocates on a bill working through the state of Wisconsin legislature on an issue that is so important and so, I think, elusive to many of us in the audience. Every time I am on the show or have a guest talking about mental health, 
we get a lot of great feedback. This is a very complicated issue. And right now, I think many should should have hope that I don't want to say help is on the way, but we're working towards a solution. Benjamin Gerbadian from the Institute for Reforming Government. You are a student fellow with the organization. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Tracy. All right. So give us a little background about the state of mental health in in Wisconsin. Sure. Um, So Wisconsin, like most other states, is facing a shortage of mental health professionals. Um, Since the COVID pandemic, and really I'd argue since before then, but the COVID pandemic really sped up problems that are... Uh, Wisconsinites are experiencing with mental health care. Uh, and so a lot of people are looking for these solutions, are looking for therapy, are looking for uh, different medical treatments, um, things that really help them get back to what they consider uh, a normal and healthy lifestyle. And so uh, lawmakers in Wisconsin are increasingly dedicated to trying to find ways to fix this shortage. The governor declared it the year of mental health mm-hmm. in his state of the state yes. uh, several months ago. Um, so we at IRG are focused on trying to find solutions as well. Uh, and we're advocating for a bill right now called AB 541. Uh, it was heard in committee yesterday. Uh, and what this bill would do is it would allow uh, doc- mental health professionals from other states to be allowed to treat Wisconsinites via telehealth uh, solutions such as Zoom or, or other types of video conferencing. Um, so right now in Wisconsin, if you want to treat, if you're a therapist and you want to treat Wisconsinites, you have to be approved by the Wisconsin, uh, it's called the Department of Safety and Professional Services. DSPS, DSPS. affectionately known as DSPS. Affectionately <laughs> known as DSPS, yes. Um, so DSPS treats everyone who applies as a blank slate. And what we realize is that there are qualified mental health professionals in every other state who might be interested or willing to treat Wisconsinites, but don't want to go through the whole licensure process that it takes. Um, So this bill would say that if you have a license in another state, we recognize that as valid because there's no clinical difference in treating Illinoisans as there is in treating Wisconsinites. So there shouldn't be a legal difference either. Yeah. And many other professions or licensed professions are like that, whether it's real estate or nursing or uh, I would argue even, you know, nail techs or or therapists, Mm -hmm. they do require state by state licensure. And this is one of the barriers for employment, I think, in, in many fields. Are you seeing this as an opportunity to clear the way for other multi-state licensure? Right now, I'm here to advocate for this bill. Yep. Uh, we think this is a great starting point. Personally, I would love to see it applied to other professions. I think this is a great thing uh, that allows more people to make a living uh, the way that they want to in whatever state they want to live in. Um, but yeah, we think mental health is a great place to start uh, because it's simple. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of upstart to get a thing going in Wisconsin. I mean, a, a mental health therapy session is just an hour-long Zoom meeting when you really break it down. Uh, it's just a matter of who that Zoom meeting is with. Um, so we think this is a great starting point to work on showing that telehealth is a great option for Wisconsinites. So who's in opposition of this? What? Why wouldn't this happen? Um I don't think there's a huge organized opposition. You're never going to hear radio or TV ads against this type of bill. Um, the the people who are more hesitant to do it are people who are unsure, are are less experienced or less um, knowledgeable about the ways that this type of thing works. Maybe they don't have experience with receiving therapy or telehealth or um, those types of solutions. 
it's it's mainly in my view it's mainly an ignorance problem in that a lot of people just don't know what the problem is and don't know that this is a potential really easy solution so what is your connection to this and why do you care so much about this you are a student fellow Mm -hmm. you are a young man benjamin what drew you to this issue and to be so involved in the advocacy effort uh, i've been a nerd for as long as i can remember oh and not a nerd i've oh, i love it and i love politics um so i've been a student fellow with irg i'm a college student in waukesha right now and i've been a student fellow for about two years with irg uh last year i began experiencing symptoms of mental illness and i began having panic attacks and needed someone to help me with that and so i began seeking out therapy and seeking out other solutions and in doing so, discovered how much of a shortage there really is and discovered how hard it is to find some of those things. So um, I found a solution that works for me, and I'm, I'm doing better now. Uh, but I wanted to see what the problem was. I'm naturally a very curious person, and I wanted to know what the problem was and if there was a, a public policy solution to this type of problem. And how difficult was it to get a bill author, or was IRG really kind of the path for you to be able to do that? We have a great team, uh, and and we've been working together with a lot of different interested stakeholders in the state capitol. Uh, the um, Milwaukee Police Association is a supporter of this bill. IRG is supporting this bill. Um, we have the group of therapists supporting this bill and a lot of college students. Um, so I wrote an op-ed in the Journal Sentinel back in March um, that was the focus of basically it was here's my experience and here's a potential solution Uh, And then we worked over the summer months with IRG to talk with people in the legislature, see if there was support. And we got, I would consider, a tremendous amount of support. We have a bill with almost 25 uh, co-sponsors on it, which is incredible. And I'm I'm really excited about that. So it went through committee yesterday. What's the next step? What's the process? And what should listeners be watching for? Yeah. So the the committee hearing was yesterday. Uh, We got to go to Madison to testify. Um, I'm proud to say that it passed committee this morning. Um, so next step is the vote on the full floor of the assembly before all 99 state representatives. Uh, that could happen as early as next week. We don't know exactly. They haven't scheduled it yet. So, um, but it could be as early as next week. Otherwise, it could be within the next few weeks. So. How a bill becomes a law. And yeah. the governor will sign it, we think, right? In the year of mental health? He hasn't said anything on this specific bill, but he cares a lot about mental health. And this is a simple solution. It's an easy solution. And it's a free solution. It doesn't spend any taxpayer dollars. Benjamin Gerbadian from the Institute for Reforming Government talking about mental health in Wisconsin. And maybe some hope is on the way to receive some help or to increase the access to help here in Wisconsin. It's 1242 right here on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I am your host, Tracy Johnson, and for Jeff Wagner this week, we have in studio uh, an advocate and fellow, a student fellow with the Institute for Reforming Government, Benjamin Gerbedian, who is working on a piece of legislation that would help give more access to mental health care across the state of Wisconsin. Benjamin, why does mental health care matter yeah. to Wisconsinites? Uh, I think mental health is one of the most pressing issues we have um, imminently facing our state and really the country. Uh, I work for the Institute for Reforming Government. We're a nonprofit think tank organization. We're dedicated to, to finding common sense public policy solutions um, to breaking down barriers that uh, are stopping people from che- achieving their American dream. Um, we did a, a thing over the last two years called we call it what Wisconsin wants. The product of it is a is a survey. Um, we held over 60 listening sessions across the state with a ton of people, um, hundreds of people, all different types of groups. We did one with farmers, small business owners, doctors, lawyers, students, teachers, rural, urban, 
every every group you can think of, we probably talked to some of them at least once. Um, and every single one we did, mental health came up, which absolutely astounded me. We were in um, western Wisconsin on a dairy farm, and we were talking about dairy farmers, and we said, what are some of the issues that are impacting you? And they said, you know, the obvious things. They talked about, you know, DNR regulations and shipping costs and fuel and all of those things. And then they said mental health. There are a lot of farmers who are experiencing mental health problems. We talked to teachers in uh, inner city Milwaukee and said, what's one of the problems caught, uh, uh, facing you? And they said mental health care. Our students have mental health crises like never before. So this is truly the issue that everyone is facing. And there are a bunch of different solutions um, because this is a really complicated problem. So we're advocating for AB 541, which is a really um, – specific and simple solution that we don't think is the silver bullet that'll solve everything, but we think it's a fantastic start. Do you have a sense for what the actual shortage is? How many mental health professionals are we really short in our state? So there, uh, the state health department has an index, uh, and I'll admit I don't know how this has come up with, but they've determined that the number needed is about one mental health professional for every 250 citizens and uh, in, a, in a county. Uh, and the only county in Wisconsin right now that has that number is Dane County. They're the only one. Uh, in places like Buffalo County, which is in the northwestern part of the state, uh, they have one mental health professional for every 13,000 citizens. So this is a incredible, like, dramatic shortage. Uh, and it gets worse as you get to rural areas because there just aren't as many doctors in rural areas to help the people that need it. That is fascinating. You mentioned kids in Milwaukee, but kids in rural areas, too, where yeah. these these issues are universal. And that's what I think is so fascinating. We can all relate and we can all relate to a struggle of trying to have access to mm-hmm. the health care, to the mental health professionals. So once again, this AB 541 is an assembly bill that would basically allow mental health professionals to cross state lines and provide telehealth services to the people who need it. Yeah, and they don't even have to physically cross state lines to do it. I could sit in my house in Waukesha and get on a Zoom meeting with a therapist in California. Both of us would go about our day afterwards, but I would would have received the health care that I needed and not had to find someone in Wisconsin where we're facing a dramatic shortage. Benjamin Grubedian with the Institute for Reforming Government, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be watching this closely and wish you great luck in your advocacy efforts. Thanks for having me on, Tracy. Right now, it's 1249 on WTMJ. Great to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon, 1252 on WTMJ, right here from The Avenue. It's so cool being in the middle of all of this uh, and so so great to be with all of you today. So this was actually sent to me by a couple different people. It broke last night and the headline reads that the Milwaukee Brewers purchase a nearly two acre site near American Family Field. So the story goes that the Brewers organization purchased its 1.8 acres that was a former salvage yard. It belonged to the National Salvage Recycling uh, Center. And this land is adjacent to kind of the Miller Park, or I'm sorry, American Family Field parking lot uh, down in kind of the Menominee Valley. They purchased the land for, doesn't say the price here, but they purchased the land. And it had a lot of people that, you know, I work with and a lot of people that I kind of talk to you about this, thinking, oh, what's going on here? Are the brewers getting into real estate? And it, it just, it, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. 
The brewers suggested that they purchase this property to meet some of their storage needs. So we'll see what happens with that. I think it's interesting, though, that this property, you know, it was a salvage yard. And so any sort of development, if they were to get into this real estate game, this land would have to go under some significant remediation. I mean, a, a, it's a recycling plant. It's It's got probably contamination. You've got potentially oil. You've got contaminants. So if they were to get into this business of real estate, uh, I think it would be a lot of work. And there would be a great expense, but who knows? We've heard Brewers Ownership talk about the fact that if real estate was a good business for them to be in, then they would be in it. And so maybe they're they're testing it out. Maybe they're testing it out. This all comes kind of at the time where we're talking about developing the parking lot at American Family Field. What I find interesting when I look at the map of this property is that it seems to be very close, looking at the, the Google Maps, to Kumatsu. The Kumatsu site, the former Kumatsu site, just south of this recycling plant, and then just east of it, you've got a Rex, the former Rexnord site, which is on the market. So you've got some vacant real estate land opportunities that if they really wanted to get into this business, there seems to be a lot available. Some have said, try it, try it on this land, because this land, the Kumatsu land, the, the, the recycling center land, this is not encumbered by the state property tax exemption. I think that is a major barrier that many people don't think about and talk about or understand on why the development of American Family Field parking lot is very, very difficult. Right now, that is tax exempt. It's exempt from property taxes. So this might be an interesting opportunity. I have I have been mm, not necessarily in favor of it just because I think it's a push. I think there there's a, a huge opportunity cost. Many people have said, no, this is a tailgating culture. We can't give up this land. We can't give up this opportunity to tailgate. And there's a lot of revenue tied to it. The brewers have also said that they're not really interested in being involved, but maybe they are. So we're going to continue to follow this story and continue to follow the money and continue to follow the reporting on this. I think this is actually a very interesting first step. We saw the Bucks do it, right? They got into the real estate development business. And it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. A lot of people think you just put up a couple of restaurants, you put up a couple of apartment buildings, and then there you go. I mean, it is a lot of work. It is very detailed, and it takes a lot of money and a lot of patience. I mean, you look right now at the Deer District, Punchbowl Social, I think is it's it just went out. So they're going to have to find another user. They're going to have to repurpose that. The other thing that's concerning about that property, if we were just to say, let's go for it around American Family Field, is that you'd be taking away a lot of those entertainment dollars that already are spent downtown. We only have so many entertainment dollars. So I think there are a lot of people who are for it, a lot of people who are against it. But for right now, I think I'm encouraged to see that it's not part of the deal moving forward. And 
in a few minutes, we're going to have with us Omar Sheikh, who is working with a coalition, the Home Crew Coalition, that's focused on finding a solution that will keep the brewers here in Milwaukee, not just through 2030 when their, their lease expires, but through 2050. He'll be coming up at 1.30, but right now it's 12.58 UTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back on WTMJ. Great to be with you on this Thursday afternoon. I didn't get a chance to tease this topic, but I think a lot of you will be able to relate. So whenever I travel by air, which I do a lot these days, I always kind of try to set my expectations i know that when i go to the airport there there are probably going to be changes to my schedule um i'm probably going to be uncomfortable i usually fly southwest i should say i know there could be delays i'm gonna have to go through security usually i'm with my kids and so that's a whole nother wrinkle to all of it it just is what it is. And I'd say as a traveler, and usually I'm traveling for, well, I, it's probably 50-50. I travel for fun and family and I travel for business, but I, I have pretty low expectations. And on a rare occasion, I am pleasantly surprised. And right now, I seem to be in the growing minority here, at least according to the latest survey and information from the U.S. airlines. So a couple of quick facts. So U.S. air travel is up these days. I mean, if if you've been to an airport lately or if you've had air travel, you know that people are flying. People are back. There are something like 45,000 flights in the U.S. each day and 2.9 million passengers per day on these flights. So, so a little bit more um, about this topic. Consumer... Complaints about airlines, though, have nearly doubled. All right. So these 2.9 million passengers flying about the country are logging complaints. Consumer complaints about airlines have nearly doubled in the first three months of this year after year compared with the same period last year. And it continues to soar, according to the Transportation Department. These latest figures, of course, are from the government. The department said it received 24,965 complaints about airline service in the first three months of the year, up 88% from the first quarter of 2022. Consumers filed another 6,700 complaints in April, up 32%, and 6,500 in May, an increase of 50%. Now, you might be asking, why are these numbers from earlier in the year? Well, the government says that there are so many complaints, they can't even get through the complaints. The Transportation Department said that the disability-related complaints, such as delaying or damaging wheelchairs, are also up from last year. There were 636 such complaints in the first quarter, nearly double the 380 filed during the same period of 2022. The agency says that it takes a lot of time and investigates each of these disability complaints. You also think about Southwest Airlines, which I think probably contributed to a large number of these complaints when 
they uh, had the, the service meltdown earlier in the year that led to around 17,000 canceled flights last December. So if the Department of Transportation has received 25,000 complaints, the airlines are also receiving these complaints. And that's one of the things that the Department of Transportation suggested. So, so I ask, what's going on here? Are, are the airlines actually getting worse or do customers need to lower their expectations? Do we just expect too much of our airlines? Do we need to just be patient? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Are the airlines actually the problem or are we the consumers? Now, the prices of flights are increasing. So I can see how people would say, well, if the price is going up, then I should I should be able to have a higher expectation. But we're seeing flights are being cut in some places, in some markets, because of staffing. We're seeing a pilot shortage. And yes, this is all leading to higher costs and delays. We're seeing consolidation of flights. I know that uh, some of these flights are canceled at the last minute because there aren't enough people on the flights. So are these airlines actually getting worse or are we? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Like I said, I fly 20 times per year. I do it for business. I travel for pleasure. And I do think it's it's not exactly what it used to be. But I, I tend to ratchet my expectations. And I know that... <sighs> I can give some people a break, but but then again, I look and I say, I'm spending $500 on this ticket. But I'm not sure that the airlines are listening to these complaints. Don't you think they would be going down by now? So are the airlines getting worse or are we the problem? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. We have a couple of callers and texts. We will get to those when we come back. It's 113 on WTMJ. Complaints nearly double from a year ago by passengers on airlines. So people are complaining more and more and more about the airlines. Is Are the airlines the problem or is it us? Jackie in Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, my example is with the airlines. Yes. I recently was on a flight, and um, they asked for people to get up their seats. They came out with $1,200 right away. I was like, holy cow, it would be three hours delayed. You know, you're still going to get into your destination. I jumped on it. Uh, there was eight other people. Nobody knew that they were going to get kicked off the flight. They literally were walking up to scan their barcode to get onto the plane, and the lady would say, oh, I'm sorry, you got to stand over there. I'm sorry, you got to stand over there. After... All those eight people, everyone else is on the plane. Oh, I'm sorry. There's no room for you. Um, you're going to have to take another flight, and you're going to get $700. What? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I gave up my seat for 1200 These people should get 1500 because yeah. they're more inconvenient. I mean, that to me, and they were told to contact customer service. Like, the gate agent can only <laughs> give them $700. Oh, my God. I they- mean, I'm getting 1200 and I volunteered. They did not want to give up their seats. There was even one point where, like, the lady's sister was on the plane already. Yeah. And the, you know, she couldn't get on because they weren't sitting together. I mean, to not tell people in advance that 
It's There's no room fun. for you on the flight, I think, is horrible also. I have not ever been forced like that, but I've been on flights where they were oversubscribed and oversold and people were offered more money. I never took it just because I was Wait. always nervous. But, you know, and and good for you for sticking up for the other person who got less. Jackie, thank you so much yes. for the call. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if the flight attendants or the people managing the the station have discretion over what they would give or how they would make up for it. I would assume that the people who file the complaints, like these 25,000 who did in the first three months of the year, have some sort of expectation that they would get a credit or they would get a, a, a ticket voucher or something like that. And if that's the case, I can see why it takes so long. And there's so much work put into answering these complaints. John in Milwaukee or on WTMJ. Hey, how you doing? Great. Um, you know, I fly, I strictly fly Southwest. I've never had a problem with Southwest. I fly at least once or twice every single year. Uh, my plane, my plane is loaded and on the runway and take it off even before they say that the departure is supposed to be. I've never had a problem with my bags. I've never yes. had a problem with I mean, I, I don't know what everybody's problem is. I fly right through TSA, especially in Milwaukee. Yeah. I'll, drive, I'll fly to Vegas. I have no problems both ways. I'm like, I don't know what everybody's complaining. I never had a problem. But there was a, a thing about, uh, you know, the prices on the tickets, as people don't understand, is the price of gas may go down, but the price of diesel and jet fuel has never gone down. Yeah. It's still high, and the, and the refineries have a choice to either run diesel or jet fuel or to run gasoline for cars. And right now they even said, you know, hey, diesel and jet fuel, are, they're not going down. So until those prices go down, mm-hmm. you know, the tickets might stay up there for a while, especially on jet fuel, because there's no bearing on what you're yeah. getting at the pump yeah. compared to what they're charging for jet fuel because they're all run on different refineries. Yeah. And if they don't want to run jet fuel, those prices are going to stay high. But my, my biggest thing is I've never had a problem with anything on Southwest ever. Yeah. Well, so I don't know what everybody's complaints are about. Well, maybe you're like me, John, and you just maybe have lowered expectations. I'm a, I'm a Southwest flyer as well, and I know it's going to be the cattle call. In fact, one time, just recently, I, I was going to a destination that only, that only was serviced by Delta, and so I took Delta for the first time in a very, very long time. And I actually really liked the experience. I liked knowing where my seat was going to be. And I don't remember if it was more expensive or not, but I still went in with moderate expectations. And guess what? I had no complaints. John, thank you so much for the call. Yeah. I, I know an, a number of texters uh, suggest that they're just packing too many people into these cramped quarters. Uh, they're like cattle. There's very little breathing room. And I think when you when you get into these tight spaces, you get crabby. And especially if I mean, if you have a crying baby or if somebody puts the seat back towards you. I mean, I think that some of the complaints lobbied are probably a little bit ridiculous. In fact, there was one that I pulled actually from this story where this passenger got on a flight and her daughter had a peanut allergy. And so she asked the, the stewardess to do a couple of things because her daughter had this peanut allergy. She asked the, this, the stewardess to wipe down the seat make an announcement to alert the passengers that there was someone with a nut allergy on board and that 
the airline would refrain from serving almonds and nuts during the flight. And the flight attendant said, you know, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Listen, I got 150 people trying to get on this plane and you're asking me to do these three things. And maybe if you're listening and you think, well, that seems easy. I know nut allergies are serious, but these stewardesses and these flight attendants have the discretion to say, yes, I have the time and yes, I have the capacity and yes, I'm able to do this. Well, this woman filed a a complaint against the airline because she made the decision to deplane, to get off. And so she was wildly inconvenienced and she, you know, filed this complaint. And, you know, I'm glad that the airline is sticking by her, though. The airline is sticking by her and saying, listen, the airline stewardess, they have the discretion. You know, if we made an accommodation for every single person, this would be a very, very difficult place to work. And this would be very, very difficult and even more expensive. So when I ask the question, is it the airlines or it's us? I think we need to meet in the middle. And I hate to be vanilla on that, but, you know, this is a big time operation. We're talking about 2.9 people a day flying on these flights. And this is a major industry, major, major uh, industry for our country. But I think the government needs to do a better job of working through these complaints and then listening to the complaints and then responding appropriately to the complaints. Because I think there's there are some things that could be learned. Don't oversell the plane. Think about how you're charging. Think about the flow of passengers. But at the end of the day, not everyone is going to be happy. I, I keep my expectations low when I'm flying on the plane. All right. So this is the home of the Brewers and the home of, of baseball in Wisconsin. We're going to talk Brewers baseball in about 10 minutes with Omar Sheikh from the Home Crew Coalition. But before we get to that, I want to hit this piece on an update on what's happening in Oakland. I am fascinated by the story about the Oakland A's, and I have an update when we return. It's 123 on WTMJ. One twenty-six on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on this Thursday afternoon. I just love following these stories that develop throughout the week. And even even before this week, I was following this closely. And it is the story of the Oakland Athletics moving to Las Vegas. And it's actually posed as a question for those of you following uh, Major League Baseball owners, the, the 30 owners of Major League Baseball teams across the country are set to vote next week in Texas when in Arlington, Texas, at the owners meetings. And they will be voting on whether to move the Oakland Athletics to Las Vegas. I think this is fascinating that that the league as a body votes to move these teams around and votes on which markets receive these teams. The barrier is pretty high, though, to make that happen. 75% of the owners, so 23 of the 30 owners, need to vote to approve this move. And it's interesting to note that the votes are rarely called unless the group has significant confidence that it will pass. 
Yet there's not much about the A's move that appears to be shovel ready. I think this is this is the fascinating part of the story. It's been going on for a number of years. And it started when the owner of the Oakland Athletics, his name is John Fisher, he grew tired of attempting to secure funding for a new stadium in Oakland. And he abruptly cut off the negotiations with the city and announced his intention to move the team to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas was dangling in front of him a $1.5 billion retractable roof stadium. And it says, theoretically, I know, Aaron, yesterday when we talked about this, uh, you had pulled up a picture. And this thing is just insane. This billion dollar, $1.5 billion facility. It's going to be theoretically, supposedly, on the site of the Tropicana, which actually was breaking news to me. I didn't realize the Tropicana was, was on the chopping block. While the stadium search has dragged on for newly, nearly two decades in Oakland and other barrier Bay Area cities, they would be moving to the 40th largest media market in the country. And I I find this interesting to note that Las Vegas is not one of the top tier media markets. Where they're moving from is actually has is number six on the list. So it's interesting when we talk about whether it's a a strong media market or whether the team and the stadium and the operation relies on ticket sales. In Milwaukee, our team, the Brewers, rely on ticket sales. We we don't have the strongest media market. And so it's a very fan-based um fan-based approach. So fast forward to this week, we reported that the mayor of Oakland has now come forward and he is petitioning the owners. The MLB owners, he's saying, listen, sorry, I, I mean, we made a mistake. We, we, we want to help build a stadium. We want to fund the necessary repairs. We are committed to doing this. Give us another chance. And so apparently he filmed this video and he's saying this is where we need to be. And he's you know showing why they can't move, why they should stay in Oakland. They're saying, oh, wait a minute. We made a mistake. We should have negotiated sooner. And to give you an idea of the timing of this, the Oakland A's lease expires after the 2024 season. So how fascinating is this, that if they were to move to Las Vegas, they would not have a stadium in Las Vegas until 2028. So this thing hasn't even broken ground yet. I find this fascinating. And I think it, it, for me, expresses why it's so important that when we talk about what's happening with the Milwaukee Brewers and American Family Field, that we put the appropriate amount of urgency around this. I mean, while the current lease is through 2030, we don't have a lot of time. When you make a real estate decision, when you move a team, it takes a lot of time. And now the Brewers have not made any sort of indication that they would leave, but to read about and to learn about the turmoil that's happening across Major League Baseball, I think it's it's fascinating. And right now, the Oakland A's are just a few days away from finding out what city they will be playing in. And so they don't they might not even have a stadium.
So if they are to go to Las Vegas, they're not going to have a stadium to play in. And so how are they going to go back and work with the Oakland A's and use that facility for not one year, but two years, three years, four years? You think they're going to go for that? I don't know. This seems like such a shotgun approach and so poorly handled. I just, I'm just grateful that we're not in that position here in Milwaukee. Speaking of Milwaukee and speaking of the Brewers, we have a very special guest with us in the studio next. Omar Sheikh, he is with the Home Crew Coalition. He's been on the show many times before, but we'll talk to him about the recent movement in the funding package for American Family Field. More when we come back here on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. We've talked a lot of baseball today. Who thought there would be so much Brewers action offseason? Well, that's when the best action happens, right? Is moving things around, getting new coaches, general managers, all that kind of stuff. Right now we have in studio with us Omar Sheikh. He is the chair of the Home Crew Coalition. And what other titles do you hold around town? Um, That's a good question. I I guess I'm just a partner in several different types of businesses. (laughs) Yeah. And sorry, right. you're very humble. We appreciate it. So, so you are working right now on the Brewers Stadium. I don't want to say funding package, but you're working on the advocacy around the Brewers funding. Where does that stand today? I think it, I think it changes by the minute. Um, I think the vast majority understand that this has to get done. <clears throat> um, but I, as as a lot of these types of deals, from my understanding, that it it will come down to the wire, like a lot of these deals do. Well, and you've said in the past that this deal is going to live and die a thousand times. And we're, are we almost to a thousand? <laughs> we're getting close. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's close. Um, you know, it's, uh, again, it, it's politics I, I, from what I'm hearing is, is a funny thing and things change by the minute. And, um, you know, just uh, still have a, a lot of great hope that they'll make the right decision and, you know, keep the Brewers here long term. Well, and talk a little bit more about the importance of making sure the Brewers stay right here in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk about the, the positives. I can also talk about what would happen if they were actually to leave, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people aren't thinking about that, right? It's uh, <clears throat> stadium district owned. It's it's owned by the by the state, by the taxpayers, right? That The land is not owned by the Brewers, nor is the building. Um, and so what's going to happen if the Brewers leave, right? I mean, who, who's going to be the tenant, right? Is it a net positive or net negative? It's certainly a net negative, right? But let's also talk about the thousands of jobs it creates. Let's talk about, you know, the, 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 the millions of people that it brings in town from, from local to statewide to nationwide. Um, let's talk about all the bars and restaurants and, and hotels that survive on the Brewers being here. Um, it's tremendous for them, right? And so, you know, it, it would be catastrophic to see them leave and affect so many families and um, hardworking families. Uh, it would be catastrophic. Well, and the Brewers haven't said that they want to leave, but sometimes in the cases of like of Oakland, which we just discussed last segment, sometimes you're left without a choice. I am sensing from what I see is that there is definitely a strong bipartisan and broad desire to make sure that they stay here but that we can can gain more from 
the stadium and from the American Family Field uh, as a development, as a, an entity, as an entertainment venue. Mm-hmm. And I love the way they talk about upgrading so the winterization of the facility mm-hmm. all of that we saw some some concerts recently announced kenny chesney yeah. uh, zach brown band that wasn't happening as much just three or four years ago no 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 and I, listen I, I mean you know the, the brewers have fought tooth and nail and continue to fight tooth and nail to stay here they want to stay here <clears throat> i mean if it's a situation where we don't get some funding in place they won't have a choice I mean, I, I can tell you there are other markets that are actively mm-hmm. seeking the brewers out to move to their, relocate to their places. And this is this is from the things that I've heard. This is not them saying that. Um, you know, but let's talk about concerts a little bit. I wrote an op-ed the other day, and, you know, one out of two people are coming in from out of the state to come to these concerts. I mean, you had George Straits, uh, Chris Stapleton. You had Pink recently. You had Morgan Wallen. I mean, what it did for hotels and businesses, downtown was like thriving, but not just downtown. I talked to the Brookfield. I talked to New Berlin. I talked surrounding area hotels were packed because of this. And so, you know, this is just an opportunity to bring people from out of our state here. One out of two are coming from outside that would never come through southeast Wisconsin, um, let alone, you know, come into Wisconsin if we didn't have these concerts. But also think about the winterization of this building. Now we can go out and get monster truck or concerts or events you know, in the off season where, where businesses and everybody needs it more. Well, and to always have choices, I think as somebody who plans events and goes to conferences and attends conferences and and plans these types of things where you need several thousand people, we don't have a lot of space for that. And this offers so many great opportunities. I am totally on board with you. And I think there's, again, broad and bipartisan support to make this happen. Can you talk a little bit more about the economic impact and 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 what other uh, why else it's important that we continue to keep the brewers front and center in Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, let's say that we can't get funding in place. I think there's <clears throat> the stadium district will have funding, to, you know, for the next I think I believe eighteen months. Um, so let's say that we can't get the funding to keep the brewers here. I mean, you know, said it all along that there's so many businesses that rely on the brewers being here, but we can't call ourselves a tier one city if we lose a major league baseball mm-hmm. team, period. We can't be the city that loses it because a lot. Some, if you look historically at the cities that have lost, whether it be an NBA football or baseball team, it's been on the decline ever since. And so it's a lot of the times it's too late and people realize what happens when it's too late. And so... Listen, they, they, they haven't threatened to leave or they, you haven't heard any of that. They fought tooth and nail to stay here. But I, I, I will say that it, it's, it's, we're getting to a point where it's getting very serious right now. And, and I really hope that all legislators really come together to understand that this has to happen. It absolutely has to happen. It will be so catastrophic in so many ways if this deal doesn't get done very soon. And we heard a couple of the legislators who were maybe knows before who have kind of come around one of the things they said is, imagine if we were left as a state to now take care of that empty facility. Right. That is, I mean, what are you going to do with a 47,000 seat arena? There's- I mean, maybe you'll have your handful of concerts, but I mean, you're not going to get another major league team, baseball team to come in here and play there or anything comparable. It'll be a net negative, 100%. Omar Sheikh with the Home Crew Coalition in studio right here on WTMJ. One forty-five on WTMJ. 
The Brewers are close to a deal. I should say the the legislature is close to a deal, a funding package for the maintenance uh, of the American family field. And so we were in studio with Omar Sheikh from the Home Crew Coalition discussing the importance of really keeping the brewers here and making sure that we're able to fund the facility in a way that we can continue to provide the economic impact that a stadium of this stature can really bring to our region. Uh, before I ask Omar a quick question about another hot topic, I just wanted to note um, great input from one of the texters related to the story in Oakland. Uh, Oakland A's, as we've mentioned, are in the process of potentially moving to Las Vegas, another market from a six-tier uh, six market, uh, the, a, a media market, to now the 40th uh, largest market. So really making a big move, but they would receive a, a brand new stadium, a $1.5 billion stadium. Well, the MLB owners need to basically vote to make that happen. And the chair of that committee is the Milwaukee Brewers' own Mark Atanasio. And so he has a front seat to all the, the good things that could be, but all the bad things and all the consternation and the divide that happens when we have to make decisions like this. So I'm grateful that we don't have to be in this situation here in Milwaukee because the Brewers have suggested they want to stay here. The Brewers have suggested they want to stay here, but our general manager, our manager, Craig Council, not so much. Omar, you have done some work with Craig Council. What's your what's your take on this decision? I haven't done much work with him. Um, gotten to know him a little bit, not really well. I mean, honestly, it's it's disappointing. I mean, you know, it's uh, of course I thought he was a good coach, um, but remember, there's a lot of people in this organization that that keep that wheel moving, and so it also got to talk about the players and how the players fought this year. Um, of course, we a lot of us and all of us wanted him to stay. Um, he got a great offer. You got to do what's best for your family. Um, but also sometimes you have to take in consideration. I don't know what the deal was, if Mark was going to match it. Um, I know Mark wanted to keep him, but legacy is also real, really important. So I was, I was sort of surprised, to be honest with you. Wow. And, and there was just a piece uh, in the paper and, and many posts on social media that he's a villain. And I think people are really hurt by this decision. They thought that he would be here for the rest of his career. He was here for 15 <clears throat> years. And even though it was about the money... The money was huge. It was $40 million over five years. Mm -hmm. He said it was a new opportunity. I mean, the Cubs have a lot more money to invest in their players. And so potentially we could be working with some better tools here, too. Yeah. Listen, I, I don't think you should go out and bash him and paint over signs and call him a villain. I mean, <laughs> that's, I don't think that's fair. Again, I mean, we're all disappointed, though. I mean, you know, it would have been great for him to stay and build a legacy here and and, and get, get one for us here. But, um, you know. It is what it is. Yeah. And what we saw is that the rest of the management team appears to be in place. Mm -hmm. They will be here for the long term. And so we, we all know that it is about the leader. It is about the person at the top. But it's also about the people underneath the leader uh, that can really add to the, the um, continuity. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of leaders within that organization. And, and I'll say, like, Rick Schlesinger is, is, is a perfect example, but also Mark Antanasio of had the pleasure of becoming friends with both of those, knowing both of those guys, and they really care about the city, and they love the city. Um, so, you know, it, one man, but uh, it is sad to see him go for sure. Um, but, it, you know, it's going to be that much more gratifying when we crush the Cubs. Oh, <laughs> I know. And those dates are out. It's sometimes, sometime 
early in the season. I shouldn't I think. say we. I'm not with the Brewers, but you know, yeah, as a city, uh, yes. The Brewers yeah. are our team. Yes, there are yes. Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> I know. Even walking in the halls here, there was a lot of cross talking about, oh man, he's a traitor and all of that. So I thought by now we'd be kind of cooled down. That was Monday's news, and I, I still have a lot of people talking about it today. I mean, you know. I, I'm not going to bash. I'm not going to bash him, but again, just say disappointed. You know, I, I think a, a legacy building him here and getting one here, a, a World Series here for for Milwaukee would have been huge. Well, we will see, and hopefully for not only Craig Council is it a new opportunity, but for the Milwaukee Brewers, maybe it's a new opportunity. We shall see. Omar Sheikh with the Home Crew Coalition. Thank you so much for being. Thanks with for us, having I me think. on, Tracy. Good All right. See you. More when we come back. It's 1:49 on WTMJ. to Omar Sheikh for being with us earlier. Omar has a, a, such a following and a great fan base uh, here with WTMJ listeners. He's such a great advocate for our community, for our business community, and for the Brewers' ownership. And boy, he really is such a... Boy, he kind of rises above all of it. you know. And he is front row to watching the sausage being made, which is the ugly stuff that none of us want to deal with. Uh, watching these bills go through the different houses and the different legislators and, and all of that. I mean, this is complicated business. And if you recall, this all started earlier this year when Don- Governor Tony Evers had put the uh, funding package, funding for the maintenance as required by their agreement, the lease agreement, $290 million in the state budget that would be paid by the surplus, the state surplus. Well, that got kind of pulled out, not kind of pulled out. It got pulled out of the state budget, if you recall. And a new deal that would include contribution from the brewers, from the city, the state, and the county was pulled together. Rob Brooks, uh, Assembly Representative Rob Brooks, was actually the author of that put it together. I know I had attended a couple of those hearings. There was a lot of concern because the the give from the city and the county was too much at the time. At least that's how the city and the county leaders had seen it. And so they went back to the drawing board. They came up with a couple new numbers. They have now put forward a ticket tax, a ticket fee. Actually, the, the, the Senate version of the bill would include a ticket fee, a $2 ticket fee on any non-brewers game, and then an $8 fee for any non-brewer game luxury box. And so the hope is that they're able to reduce the give, reduce the amount that the state is to give, and hopefully they can get this by. And what we're hearing is that Devin Lemahue, who is the leader in the Senate, is going to bring this to the floor next week. And, you know, just like so many of these bills that go before the, the the voting body, you don't bring these things to the floor if you don't have the votes. So we're hopeful, I'm hopeful, that maybe there are a few other changes and that we can get this across the finish line. We're not sure yet if this is going... Well, I think we heard, actually, we have on record that there were nine, this is as of yesterday evening, there were at least nine members of the state Senate that were on record backing the bill to finance the maintenance of the Milwaukee Brewers Stadium after the amended measure had cleared two committees. And there was actually a Democrat on this as well. Democrat and Republican. Republican Dewey Strobel supported it. And um, 
Democrat, I'm sorry, Republican Dewey Strobel supported it and a number of Democrats as well. And really their argument for supporting it is to say, hey, listen, if we don't try to move this forward, if we don't put something forward, we are going to lose this team. And then guess what? We're going to have this albatross around our neck. We're going to have to take care of this huge facility. And we just don't, we, what are we going to do? The facility has contributed something like $200 million since its opening to the state's economy. And this is a big deal, whether it's through income tax and sales tax and all of that. And I know that these details and following the bouncing ball here is not a lot of fun. Watching the sausage being made is never a lot of fun. But at the outcome, at the outset, I think we're going to get a better deal here. I, I think back to what happened with the Buck Stadium. And that was difficult. That was a, a very big push. And we had strong leadership that were that was moving this forward. At that time, Governor Walker was really in, in support of it. Uh, Speaker Voss, we had Leader Fitzgerald, and, and the mayor was on board, uh, County Executive Chris Abley, and, and we got it done. And even though the support is not as pronounced with this deal, I still sense that there's a great deal of, of support. And I think that it's going to get done, and I'm hopeful that leaders in our assembly, local, state, or otherwise, don't end up in a position saying things that they can't unsay. I know on social media there are a number of representatives who are just blasting this. And instead of trying to find a solution, try to find a middle ground, because ultimately this is going to get done. I know this is going to get done. Find a way to finesse the communication, express the interests of your constituents, so that this is a favorable outcome because nobody wins when we have this divide. But the Brewers will be here. I have all faith and confidence. And I guess Omar Sheikh, he's a reliable source. He thinks it's going to get get done. He's very confident about that. And I made him taking time in the studio with us on WTMJ. Speaking of in the studio with us next, I have a very special guest, uh, Heather Birkin. She is a nurse who traveled to Israel after October 7th, and she went with the intention of providing health care and part of the humanitarian effort. She's going to tell us what it was like to be there. What were the expectations? What are some surprises? And what can we do as we continue to follow what's happening in Israel? More when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. So great to be with you on this Thursday afternoon, 208. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner until 3 o'clock today. And then back tomorrow, I think. Should be good. And then Jeff will be back on Monday. But right now we are joined in studio by Heather Poland-Birkin. And she's a woman that I met kind of through the small walkie connection. She is a nurse with the Milwaukee VA in Columbia St. Mary's. And she traveled recently to Israel to help with humanitarian effort. And I just have to say how we met. All right. I was at work and I was talking with a colleague about uh, this story where there was a nurse that was traveling to Israel. And my colleague said, that's my cousin. And I said, I want to talk to her. 
She sounds fascinating. I want to see what this is all about. So, Heather, thanks for being here. And tell us a little bit about your role as a VA nurse and then what motivated you to go to Israel. Well, I've been an ER nurse for 22 years. I started at Aurora Sinai, and now I've landed at the VA for the last 10 years. And uh, when the war broke out on October 7th, it was really difficult to watch the news from home. And there were so many casualties and so many injured that I figured my skills that I had as an ER nurse might be useful. And I was able to get the time off from work. So I went uh, for just short of three weeks. So you just packed up your bags and said, I need to go. Yep, I did. I tried to collect some supplies before I left for things that I thought might be needed. I had some connections for people who are already in Israel and trying to help. So people were really generous and wanting to, you know, help provide supplies. So I knew I was showing up with some like tourniquets, some trauma type dressings and looking to find a job or just a volunteer opportunity to help out. So you went there without a real place to go when you landed? Uh, Yeah, I really didn't. I had some leads on some hospitals that I was going to try to work in. I have some basic conversational Hebrew, but I didn't have medical fluency. But I felt that I would still be able to offer something. So I went without a real plan, but felt pretty confident that I would find some way to be helpful. So you went over there with the general expectation that you would be providing healthcare services right. as a nurse. And what did you see when you got there? What was the scene? Paint a picture for us. Well, when I got there, I still wasn't quite sure what I would be doing. I ended up on my layover on my way to Tel Aviv. Uh, I was in Paris and I found, I just searching through social media, a group of docs that was coming from the U.S., So I reached out to their group, and I was able to join them. So we all met up in Jerusalem, and it was a group of probably 40 of us, some paramedics, mostly physicians, a lot of surgeons, and about two or three nurses. And um, we did go initially and tour a hospital and, and sort of meet and greet the staff that was in Ashkelon, which is pretty close, which is where on October 7th, all the casualties pretty much ended up going. This is the hospital closest to the Gaza Strip. So my plan had been, hopefully, to work at this hospital. Uh, what we did end up doing with this group is we we luckily partnered with the Army, and they gave us some training. And then ultimately what they did have us do was not what I expected, which was, I mean, I think I could use the word, they embedded us and their bases. And, you know, we were there to kind of help assist with training and if there was a medical need to participate in that way. So were you scared or were you just going in saying, this is my calling, this is what I need to do to take care of the people? No, I I really wasn't scared. I think people were scared for me. I mean, when I've traveled to Israel in the past, people think I'm going to a war zone when they're not at war. And so now it was a war zone. And I think, you know, people... You know, picture me in a helmet and a flak jacket, you know, dodging missiles. And it really it really wasn't like that. I think in the beginning I had to get used to hearing sirens because there would be red alerts every time a missile is launched from Gaza, which was pretty frequent. And uh, there was an app and you could everyone needed to have on their phone. So if there was a missile in your direction, your phone would alert. Uh, and if you were close to a bomb shelter, depending on where you were in the country, you had 15 to 90 seconds to get into a shelter. 
Um, and there are so many shelters. I mean, every building, every any new construction in Israel has to have a shelter. Um, there's shelters in public places. And everyone's sort of used to the drill. So I think after my first day, where I was a little bit nervous about when I was going to hear it, was it going to work? And after I had one or two red alerts, I it just started to become routine. And you don't don't ignore those alerts, obviously. But no, I would think that in the past, people, some people would hear it and they go, oh, okay, nothing's really going to happen here. But is every single alert taken seriously, whether you were there in the past or this time? Yeah, I think it is. I think um, luckily Israel has the Iron Dome and the Iron Dome intercepts probably over 90 percent of the missiles that are launched. Um, sometimes if they're going to hit a field, they, it, you know, they don't use an Iron Dome missile, uh, to intercept it. If it's just going to fall somewhere where it won't cause damage. Um, other times there are incidents where they do miss it. And so you have to take everyone seriously. And even when the Iron Dome does connect and causes an interception, you still have shrapnel. So the shrapnel can injure people. The shrapnel starts fires. So, you know, I think some people get a little bit of like siren fatigue and might, might not, Beeline it for a shelter, but I would say for the most part, I mean, I was on the highway. I had my first highway red alert where you're nervous because you don't want to have get into an accident. If you slam on the brakes or pull over quickly, a lot of that was happening. People running across the street and getting hit by a car. So when I had my first one on the highway, you know, there were a lot of like firsts. So that one, I was a little bit nervous to have to pull over and try to find, I mean, there was no bomb shelter. So I just, I saw two young girls and, uh, you know, in a crisis, I don't even try to speak Hebrew because I'm too nervous. And so I, you know, I just found them and we hunkered down together and you get used to it. The sirens go, it stops and you have about 10 seconds and then you'll hear, you can often hear the missile, you can hear the Iron Dome. And then you hear the when you hear the explosion of the Iron Dome hitting the missile, it's a relief because, you know, it's been intercepted. Heather Birkin, uh, VA nurse who traveled to Israel to 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 take care of the Israel, the people of Israel. I mean, such a great cause and so noble of your work. Um, When we come back, I want to talk about what people in America might not know. And some of the details that you shared with me when we talked initially about what's really happening there. When we return, it's 2.15 on WTMJ. Heather Poland-Birkin is in the studio with us. She is a nurse that traveled to Israel after October 7th. Uh, She is Jewish and has gone to Israel many times, but... This time was a little bit different. She was part of a humanitarian effort and sought to give medical attention to the people in Israel. Can you describe the mood of the people when you got there? Um, I think it's heavy. It's heavy. And I think it's because it was such a personal attack. Um, It was against, you know, civilians who are in their homes most of the people bordering around uh, the Gaza borders were people who weren't afraid to live there. There were a lot of peace activists, a lot of people who were engaged uh, as much as they could be with, you know, the Gazan population, people who had work permits from Gaza to come and work mm-hmm. in Israeli businesses. There were people who would drive regularly children from Gaza into Israeli hospitals who was getting treatment in hospitals. I mean, ironically, some of those people are now some of the hostages within Gaza. But I mean, the people who were fighting for better lives for people who live in Gaza. Well, and I would think that 
it would just be a, t- a terrifying scene. But when everybody's pulling together, can you talk about the volunteer effort and the way that the country is really pulling together and moving forward, especially when they've deployed so many troops and this is a war zone now? Yeah, I think what I heard a lot of people say is, oh, the government's not working now. You know, they're focused on a war and the civilians really took it upon themselves to um, help manage some of the other things that needed to happen, like managing the all of the communities that were displaced around the Gaza border. There were lots of communities displaced around the Lebanon border because there's also, you know, missiles coming from Lebanon, from Hezbollah on Lebanon. So the middle of the country really has housed all of these displaced communities. Some of them are in hotels. Some of them are staying with families. Some are staying in empty rentals that, you know, Israelis are giving to people who are displaced. And the country really has come together to help people who are, you know, suffering financial consequences because of the war. Maybe they have farms and they lost all their international workers. There was a big movement of uh, getting people to volunteer and work in the fields uh, to pick the fruit or produce that was otherwise just going to rot to help save livelihoods for the farmers. I, there's a lot of people who are helping with the children that were from the South and saw a lot of brutality and whose parents are really not able to, you know, even pull it together themselves because of things that they witnessed. Um, so I have a cousin who is working on a building a curriculum for these kids that are living in hotels and helping them deal with the trauma you know, that they will be dealing with for the rest of their lives. So are these kids going to school? Are people going to work? What is the the state of affairs in the in the big cities? And yeah, I think in the center of the country, like around Tel Aviv, you're still getting missiles there. But around and even a little bit north of Tel Aviv, there is a little bit of a cushion. You get missiles, not as many people are starting to go back to work. But so many people have been called in through the reserves for the military. You know, there's a con- uh, conscription military where everyone from ages like 18 to 20 for girls, 18 to 21 for boys are in the military and a mandatory reserve period. So, so many people have been called uh, back to the army or you know, the military. So people are going back to work, but it's not normal because there's a lot of people missing. I mean, there are a lot of people who were affected, either had loved ones who were killed, loved ones who are hostages, loved ones that are injured. It's a small country. So I think when they talked about, like, statistically, it would be like 10, 10 9-11s for us with the amount of people that were killed, you know, and the population of Israel. So from a geographic standpoint, the size of the territory that we're talking about, the area, what what would you compare it to this? I don't know. I, mean, I heard it would fit into, like, Rhode Island. I mean, it's pretty small. In certain areas of Israel, you can... You know, it's it's like nine, ten miles to hit from uh, certain, you know, Palestinian Arab areas to the Mediterranean Sea. And certainly, you know, my last day there, I was taking time to just visit some friends and I drove from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to Haifa back to Tel Aviv. It's just easy to do. It's a small country. It's like it's a shorter trip than for me to drive from Milwaukee to Chicago. So it's a small area. So what surprised you most about your time there? You were there for three weeks, going with the intention of yeah. of providing medical services, ended up teaching kids and, and doing all sorts of other things. What surprised you most? I think what surprised me is just the resiliency of the Israeli people. I think they took a week to just be stunned and shocked and mourn. Uh, and that is ongoing. But I think that they needed to rally and take care of each other. And so 
um, just making sure that, you know, the volunteerism in the country is something I've never experienced before. I've never seen it in Israel. I've never seen anything like that, um, you know, in my own country where really the entire nation is circling the wagon around each other and trying to do what they need to do to help people mentally deal with what's going on um, and help, you know, the country survive this. Heather Poland-Birkin, a VA nurse with Milwaukee who traveled to Israel. When we come back, I want to ask you a very important question about what gives you hope and what can we do? It's 224 on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. 227 right here at the Avenue. We're almost done with the show. All right, Erin. We have in studio with us Heather Poland-Birkin. She is a nurse with the Milwaukee VA, and she traveled to Israel recently. We're talking about what she saw, what she experienced, what the expectations were, and did they line up with what she really did. So I ask you this question before the break. As you come back to the United States, what gives you hope right now about what's happening over there? You know, it, that's a tough question. I really had to think about it. I think, you know, I have faith that Israel is a strong country, uh, that they will survive this because there is no other option. And so I, I do think that Israel will prevail and they will continue to make their borders safe for their own population. What what gives me hope is that, you know, people now are looking a little bit more critically at the Middle East and just understanding the history. So it's frustrating because I think sometimes people might think they know the history from reading memes on Facebook or mm-hmm. looking at social media posts or a TikTok video. But what gives me hope is people who really want to understand the history there and understand the state of Israel and that it is legitimate and it's not going anywhere and it's an important country and democracy in that region. And so it gives me hope, too, now that there's been a, you know, a spotlight and at least people can learn a little bit more and understand. No, I, I think that that's great. And I think I've had my eyes opened as well, obviously, learning through the the horrible tragedy of you know, what happened on October 7th. There's a lot of great information, a lot of great podcasts, people like you who come on and share their stories about the experiences over in Israel. So would you go back? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm already planning when I'll go back next. Um, I I, I didn't want to come home. I was a little bit concerned because I was watching the news in the U.S. and I was seeing the rise in anti-Semitism and, you know, acts of violence or just maliciousness against the Jewish community. It's not really something I've experienced very much. I grew up in the North Shore of Milwaukee. We have a pretty vibrant, Mm -hmm. big Jewish community. Um, So I was and I certainly have been vocal. And this isn't the first interview I've done about my time in Israel. So I was a little bit nervous, and there have been stories. There was the um, woman who worked at a synagogue in Detroit who someone entered her home and killed her. So a little bit worried about just being vocal and um, and making myself a target. So uh, that was a little bit, I was a little bit leery coming back from Israel, and I felt comfortable. I thought, ironically, I'm in a war zone, but I feel more comfortable being Jewish there. Oh, my gosh. That is... That is- 
that's a horrible thing. I know it sounds it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. Well, and I just appreciate your courage to come on. And and what I appreciate about every conversation that we've had, including this one here today, is that you are just focused on doing good work and helping the people, helping people, which is that's what nurses do. And that's what you do for uh, your home country, for Israel, for, for, for everyone. So I just appreciate your work. And I think you have a lot of support um, on the text line as well. So one final question, and that is, what can we do? What can other individuals who want to learn more or help the effort do with regard to what's happening in Israel? Well, I think for one is what I'm encouraging people is to have conversations, have conversation with their friends, have conversation with their Jewish friends. I think the Jewish community for one as a whole feels a little unsafe and worried. Um, so I think also reaching out to your Jewish friends, checking in with them, you know, and also, you know, I certainly have strong feelings about Israel, but what I encourage people to do is ask questions, ask questions, talk to their friends who might be more knowledgeable about the area um, challenge them, uh, read different sources of information. Mm-hmm. Don't only, you know, don't go to an echo chamber where you're only hearing, you know, uh, potentially one part of the conflict. And, you know, I feel, I feel like every time I go to Israel, I learn a little bit more and understand a little bit more of the history. And it just also makes me confident in, in understanding the importance of having a strong Israel. So I would say just, you know, educating yourself. Well, and shouldn't we all? And I yeah. love that 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 concept of looking at different sources, because too often we do just go to one source and just assume that it's right. One final question, and this is a fun one. Yeah. So we connected on this uh, this running, the topic right. of running. Yeah. You are a marathoner. Right. And yeah. if just from meeting you and talking to you, I completely believe it. You are determined. You, I mean, because running in my mind is a mental sport. It yeah. is. I mean, I've seen people who are disabled run marathons. I've seen people who are not physically. Yeah, fit you're, you're absolutely it, right. It's a mental game. You've run fifty marathons, uh, like seventy, like seven. Oh my god! Yeah. See, I think I'm a runner, and I just run like five miles a day. But you run 70 marathons. Yeah, I say I do it. I don't do it well, but oh. I do do it. Oh, my God. That is so much admiration right here. And you've done a 50K. Yeah. Yeah, I have with my dog. I did the 50K with my dog. Oh, my God. So I almost don't believe that the dog could run 50K. <laughs> yeah, he did. I had Gatorade and he had chicken soup. Oh, my God. That's so great. Heather... Poland Birkin, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, and thank you for all your information, your insights, and your courage. Uh, and looking forward to hearing more about when you go back. And hopefully those are safe travels. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. 233 on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson. In for Jeff Wagner. We're in the home stretch. 235 on WTMJ. What a great conversation, man. I was fascinated. And for those of you watching on the WTMJ YouTube channel, you could see my face. Uh, we had in studio a nurse who had traveled to Israel to uh, provide medical services. She ended up uh, teaching children, working with farmers, all of that. And I just, I can't believe the courage. And she just described the, the setting bombs going off the iron dome. Uh, capturing those, uh, neutralizing those bombs 
and the alerts on her phone. She said she still has the alerts on her phone, even though she's here in the U.S. And so it's kind of tracking where her family and her friends are. It's just such a, 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 a terrifying situation. And just to be fearful coming back to the United States because of... Um, just because of all the divide and the consternation. So I just appreciate her approach and her, her goal of just doing good work and taking care of people, which is what I love and appreciate about nurses. All right, as we move into this last half hour, we, we like a little grab bag here. So a couple topics that piqued my interest over the last eh, 24 hours or so, and sometimes I pick these topics up and carry them forward. Yesterday, we talked about Uber and how Uber had introduced this Uber for teens. It was for 13 to 17-year-olds. They could have their own app that was connected to their parent or their guardian. And we had asked the question, would you let your teenager do that? And we had a, a, a lot of callers, a lot of texters who said either, I'm an Uber driver and no way would I take on that responsibility. We had some people suggest that, you know, at 13 years old, heck, when I was 13 year old, 13 years old, I was walking to my job by myself, you know, get over it. We've changed a lot as a society. I get it. Well, speaking of shared rides, this one caught my attention. It is the, the lift, which is kind of the, the, the competitor to Uber, the less successful competitor to Uber. So I am a lift person, by the way. That is the only app that will download on my phone. There's some reason that I can't get Uber. I can get Lyft. But they have launched a, 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 a feature on their app. It's called Lyft's Women Connect feature. And what it does is it matches female drivers and female riders to one another. And so it was launched in San Francisco, Chicago, Phoenix, San Diego, San Jose in September. And earlier this month, it debuted in a number of other cities, including Milwaukee. So this feature strives to give women and it also suggests non-binary drivers more control over their driving experience, offering them more choice in how uh, they they ride and how they participate in the ride share. And, you know, as somebody who uses the feature a lot, I use Lyft and ride share a lot. And this just struck me as a really great idea. I mean, not that I'm going to use it necessarily, but I have a lot of friends who don't use Lyft on very many occasions who don't do so because they're afraid of you know, getting in a car with a stranger or getting in a car with someone they don't know and they feel more comfortable getting in the car with a female driver. So this is an interesting feature. I have yet to try it out. I might have to do so when I go to the Bucks game on Monday. They say that the likelihood of being paired up with a female driver is 60% more likely than if you don't use this feature. So I think it's interesting. My goal at the end of the day, though, is to just have a good ride and get from point A to point B all in one piece. All right. When we come back, everybody's favorite topic, we're going to talk about pickleball. Right now, it's 239 on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. Two forty three on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson, your host for the next seventeen minutes. Sorry, right, two quick pieces that caught my attention. One is about America's new favorite sport, and that is pickleball. This is uh, the fastest growing sport in America, and if you're anybody, 
you know this. You know somebody who's giving you, is texting you or calling you and saying, hey, let's go play some pickleball. Let's go like, hit the pickleball courts. I, I am one of those people. I am not an instigator of a pickleball game, but I am certainly the recipient of many of those those invitations. And once in a while, I'll I'll do it, and I have a blast. And so it's it's on my my radar. And this week, the national pickleball championship is happening in North Texas. And what caught my attention is the size and scope of said event. This is the 2023 BioFreeze. I love who the sponsor is, BioFreeze, USA Pickleball National Championship. It's the biggest pickleball championship tournament, biggest pickleball tournament in history. And this taking place over the course of seven days, there are 4,000 players in the competition and expected to have 25,000 attendees to to watch this game what i thought was most interesting about this though is that i had always thought pickleball was a sport for retirees i know that uh i spent some time with my my family they have a place in the villages in florida which is i think the the pickleball capital of the world and i know it's really difficult to get a pickleball court during that time and everybody's doing the pickleball thing uh but the people who are the most acclaimed in this sport are between 16 and 30 years old. The, um, the, there is a 16 year old phenomenon who's accumulated 16 triple crowns on the PPA. That is the championship circuit and has tied for the most all time alongside the second or the most decorated champion, which is a 24 year old uh, named Ben Johns. So this is quickly becoming a very, very popular sport. In fact, where I belong, I belong to a tennis club or actually a, a golf club in uh, near my home. And when we have been asked to play on the pickleball courts, one of the things we, we notice is that the courts are always full. The tennis courts never have anybody on them. So there has been conversation about converting some of those tennis courts to pickleball courts. And I know that uh, Aaron who is a tennis player, has some strong feelings about that. Ten- what do you think? Yeah, the, the tennis community isn't fond of pickleball. Oh, here, here's where I'm going to push back on that. My son played tennis. My 10-year-old, he got started in tennis, and he has, he has acclimated to pickleball. He's a great pickleball player. It's kind of funny watching this 10-year-old just swing it up. Well, good on him. I, don't, I think that there's just, like, the thing was, is, you know, when I was in college, the tennis courts were suddenly getting taken over by pickleball courts, like oh. literally like tearing down tennis courts to build these pickleball courts. And to me, as a tennis lover, like I think it's such a fun sport and I think anybody can do it. And I just thought it was just kind of a slap in our face in the tennis community. Oh, I, I feel like we can all get along and we can all live in harmony. You know, one of the things I notice because I don't play the racket sports, I'm a casual observer, as I've outlined, but. Is that aren't they kind of the same court, same footprint? It's, oh, did I just step in it? No, no, it's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. It's it's a, it's a similar court, but there's the rules are yes, vastly yes. different. Um, I know that I haven't played it just out of like you know I don't even know. I just I haven't been happy about protesting. The pickleball, yeah, protesting Boycott. it, if you want to say. But I mean, I'm open to it, and I will. My plan is to infiltrate and dominate. Oh, yeah, get I've, into the sport, take over. I feel like you can do that. I can do it. I mean, especially if you go down. Well, don't go to the villages. They will kick your butt. 
I'm telling you right now. I don't know about that, Tracy. People, in fact, it's interesting. As I was pulling some of the stories for this, it is like this: this the rising of injuries um, in the retirement community. It is like the, the number one cause of injury, and so people need to be careful. But they need to get out there. I appreciate that. All right, we're going to make a very hard pivot here to this story and I, I like to do some of these stories around veterans day because veterans day this year is on saturday and i feel like we're not having as much of an opportunity to talk about it recognizing those veterans who have served our country and november 11th it's always on the same date every year but you know again we it's not a weekday and so we're not talking about it on the radio i certainly won't have the the time to talk about it but you know i always am someone who just a wants to share my gratitude for anyone who has given their time in the service. My grandpa was in the service. Um, he's no longer with us, but anyone who serves our country, anyone who is a veteran deserves our attention, our praise and our thanks. And I ran across this story that I think is really timely and it's about a, a tiny house project that is seeking right now to combat Milwaukee veterans homelessness there is a proposal right now that would build around 40 tiny homes. Now, a tiny home is just no frills, kind of small footprint, a couple of bedrooms, a bathroom, a living area. But it would be built, 40, 40 of these tiny homes would be built each year, and they would be specifically for veterans, and they would be kind of put together all together in this community so that they could continue to share the camaraderie. And, um, you know, the, the story goes on to suggest that on any given day, 200 to 300 veterans in Milwaukee experience homelessness. I hadn't realized how pronounced this issue was in the veteran community. And so the fact that Milwaukee is, is facing this head on and saying, we want to come up with a solution uh, to, to not only build homes, but to build hope. And so what this plan would call for, it's called the Veterans Community Project. This is a nonprofit that works f- works to establish free tiny homes for veterans at no charge to them. They say veterans are falling through the cracks and they need our aid. They need our support. They deserve our support. So Milwaukee would be the sixth city where the Veterans Community Project has built a tiny home village. And the, the, the program has a track record of great success across the country. It suggests that 85% of the people who have lived in one of these villages, one of these homes, has, has, has lived in it and has been successful. Oftentimes, when these veterans are, are, are in homes together, living in kind of the same area, they can rely on each other for the resources, for the camaraderie, whether they are going through emotional or mental health issues. All of that is all in one place. And I just love that Milwaukee has come together. They've moved forward. They want to approve this plan that would create this village for these veterans who so deserve uh, our support. And so with that note, I really just want to say thank you to all the veterans. I know tomorrow we'll have an opportunity to once again do a story, and I've got a couple of ideas uh, that we can discuss tomorrow uh, for the Veterans Day, which is on November 11th. We should celebrate all year long, of course, but we have only one day in the year. I want to say thank you to Heather 
Poland Birkin, who was with us in the last half hour. She's a nurse who traveled to Israel, gave her time and her service to take care of the people on the ground there. And she comes back, I think, with so much to share. I've gotten a ton of great feedback. Her perspective so appreciated, her courage so admired. I want to also say thank you to Omar Sheikh, who is in, to give us an update on what's happening with American Family Field and the funding and why it's so important that we continue to push to keep the brewers right here in Milwaukee. When we return, we'll do some crosstalk and find out what John and Greg have on tap for Wisconsin's afternoon news. But right now, it's 2.51. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, right here on WTMJ.